Hello, and welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show. This is Displaced, a podcast between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We conduct long-form interviews with leading foreign policymakers, humanitarians, and innovators to understand the work they do and how they see the world. Today on Displaced, we are talking about the interesting issue of private education in fragile contexts like Sierra Leone and Liberia. And the big problem we're grappling with in these contexts is that while access to education has exploded in the last 10 or 20 years, there is a learning crisis because many of those children are not really achieving very much in those educational settings. And what you're seeing is despite that education being free of charge to parents, there's a surge in privately provided education where parents prepare to pay and get their kids a better education. It's a moment where, in these types of settings, educational content is either totally free through an international NGO or oftentimes, and most oftentimes, provided solely by the state, or you oftentimes see private schooling that's extremely expensive and tailored to elites. But there's a new model that's coming out, and that's one in which schools are trying to provide high-quality content at low cost that are affordable to middle-income families in these settings. And even if you don't really care about the business model of how you provide education in this setting, it's really important. And it's really important because private schooling is starting to fill a major gap. By 2021, it's estimated that as many as one in four Africans, or about 66 million people, are going to be enrolled in some form of private education. So whether you care about business models or even whether you're a fan of private schools or not, they're crucial to understanding educational access in these contexts. And it's a similar story in much of much of Pakistan, India, and many parts of Asia. Uh, and what you're seeing largely is a growth of very homegrown, small enterprises then scaling up. Um, but today we're actually talking to somebody who is a, the leader of a, a global chain that is bringing foreign-owned schools into Sierra Leone and Liberia. That is Paul Skidmore. Paul is the founder and CEO of Rising Academies, which is a network of schools that provides high-quality education at low cost to students in Sierra Leone and Liberia. Paul launched Rising Academies in 2014 with the goal of not only increasing access, but increasing the quality of education. And he had auspicious timing. He launched Rising Academies just as the Ebola crisis hit Sierra Leone, which is something we talk about because launching an entirely new educational enterprise amidst an unparalleled pandemic is no small task. When schools were all shut, by the way, which is the key point. The interesting thing about Paul's approach is that he's got two types of school that he runs. One is the private school that Grant talked about, where you actually charge fees to parents. The other is a public-private partnership model in Liberia, where the state uh, actually provides the funding and it's still free at the point of delivery for uh, parents and and pupils, but it's privately delivered by, by rising academies. And there are a number of different other providers in that context. This is a great interview. We dive into questions of whether schools should themselves be universally free, which is a notion that's dominated ideas on education in OECD countries, but is being put into question in some of these new contexts. And this is a great interview because we get beyond the abstract policy debates and talk about what it's like to actually start private schools from somebody who's done it and has the insight of what it takes to do this on the ground. This is a really interesting interview, and we hope that you enjoy it. Here is Paul Skidmore. (laughs) 
Paul, it's great to have you on Displaced. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I can remember when you first said you were going to set up a private school in Sierra Leone. Why didn't you stop me? <laughs> but And with brilliant timing, you managed to set it up in Sierra Leone in the September that Ebola broke out. And often those sort of constraints are the catalyst for great innovation. Tell us about that first year in Rising Academies and how you managed to innovate. Yeah, so it was um, an incredibly bad <laughs> bit of strategic foresight on my part. Um, quite an interesting example of sort of a little knowledge being a dangerous thing, I think. Like, you know, I, I'd kind of worked in Sierra Leone quite a long time, thought I knew how everything worked and these sorts of things happen out of the blue in um, fragile states and that's why they're fragile and so um, hadn't seen it coming at all. We had spent really six months doing a lot of homework on what we were going to do, homework in terms of what the kind of need was, what the education sector was looking like, where the gaps were, the types of things parents were saying about schools. We were thinking about kind of the teaching and learning model. We'd started to recruit our first teachers. We'd started to develop curriculum, all this kind of stuff. And then it just became clearer and clearer and clearer through sort of July and August that this problem wasn't going away quickly. And by September, all schools in the country were going to have to close. And so we found ourselves with a real dilemma, which is we'd made a set of promises um, to staff. Um, that This was this new organization that we were going to start and we trained these guys. And we'd made our promises, more importantly, to parents and, and kids. And so a lot of organizations at that point were kind of stepping out of the country for understandable reasons. It was a very difficult time to operate. But we felt very strongly that we needed to try and do something. It wasn't clear whether there'd be any sort of provision um, and if there would, what sort of quality it would be for, for these kids who had been kept out of school. So we talked to parents and said, would you be up for um, some kind of homeschooling approach where we send kids in very small groups to parents homes we send a teacher along we do the kind of ebola prevention stuff so at that time it was stuff like hand washing and taking temperatures and educating kids on the symptoms of ebola and that sort of stuff um, and then some kind of basic literacy and numeracy and it won't be perfect but it'll be you know a couple of hours a day and enough of them said yeah that would be kind of interesting and more importantly enough said and i would be happy to be a kind of host um, parent for that experience and so we got going initially with like 20 kids and then that became 50. And then by the sort of January or February of the crisis, um, it was up to about 150. And paradoxically, it's ended up being a really, really important part of our story, partly because we actually learned a ton of stuff about the model, even in these very constrained environments where you were teaching in literally somebody's you know front room, but also because we've ended up putting kind of values and ethos absolutely at the heart of what we do. So let me broaden that out because it's an interesting starting point to think about educational delivery. You didn't know you were going to fundamentally be doing educational delivery in a humanitarian crisis, and you were. And right now, as something that we've said on you know this show before, uh, financing for education and emergencies is actually a very small proportion of the pie of, of the humanitarian spend. It's roughly 2%. Mm. Um, and that reflects just not as much experience. So beyond, you know, learning how to do things in tough ways, what were some of the other lessons you took away from what it means to deliver education in crises? I think the positives were that it was a reminder that there are kind of even in difficult situations immense kind of resources of a variety of kinds that can be drawn on um so you go from having essentially like no 
physical space in which to teach to suddenly having lots because parents have come forward and said, you know what, I'm up for this. Um, it was an interesting example, I think, of how education can be a platform for other things that we care about. So the crisis had been going on for quite a while by this point. It felt like it was the only thing that anyone was talking about. And we just sort of thought we'd try just to assess where our kids' knowledge of Ebola was at by this point. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the kind of public messaging around it was so everywhere that everyone would know everything there was to know. And we did this kind of little basic knowledge test and they just knew absolutely nothing about the disease, even at that point. Was it about the existence of the disease or was it about like about, how to manage it and how to deal with it? Yeah, about kind of what it really was and why, you know, why you were being asked to do the things that you were and why that, you know, so there was lots of stuff around. It's basically just a kind of severe form of malaria was was kind of one thing that was coming out and, um, you know, ways in which you could prevent it were very poorly understood and so on. So we chucked out the curriculum for a given week and basically did an entire sort of Ebola everything. It was Ebola maths, it was Ebola English, it was Ebola science, it was Ebola social studies, and retested the kids at the end of the week and their knowledge had really, really improved. We had a quite sort of telling moment where a parent came to one of the teachers and said, that's, you know, just want to thank you for what you've done. You know, Richard's been coming home every day and telling me all this stuff that he's been covering. You know, he's, he's learned a lot. And actually, you know, I've learned a lot. And we thought this was absolutely fantastic until our member of staff pointed out that this woman was a nurse at the main government hospital. Um, so it was a kind of interesting mm-hmm. example of how, it, you know, we always talk about education as a silver bullet, but it really was a way of kind of um, improving knowledge more generally. Um, I think the thing that I found depressing was um, kind of the, not to be mean to people who work in innovation in humanitarian settings, but the kind of innovation buzzwordness of what happened around then. So one of the bits of provision that was available was this radio program. Mm-hmm. I think I know where this is going. It <laughs> I remember was, this one. It was absolutely terrible in terms of the quality of provision. So like, just tell, tell so us what, yeah, what was it. So basically, what innovation te- are you throwing under the bus? The the innovation was let's get te- let's let's create a school of the airwaves. Let's you know let's have teachers teach lessons, and every everyone's got access to a radio, so you don't need to be in school to get this. Not a terrible idea in 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 practice. Education broadcasting, as you guys know very well, is hard to do well, mm-hmm. and this was not done well. These were some of the most boring lessons in the history of education delivery. And that's not my critique, Mike, that's sort of, that could have been improved. What was really depressing is every time you spoke to anyone not in the country about what was going on, they said, but I've heard there's this radio program. Like it was just kind of written up on enough blogs that people were like, oh, it's fine. That's taken care of. I fear that that is a, a thing that we see very often, that the the sort of idea is compelling and the fact that the execution is not means that it sort of closes the space for actually saying, is this working and how do we improve it? So that gets to your kind of core motivation in setting up Rising Academies. I can remember when you first started saying, I want to set up a chain of low-cost private schools. And to be honest, when I first heard it, I didn't think that was the obvious career step for you. I knew, knew very well. I thought of you as a incredibly lucid thinker about concepts like networks, a brilliant speechwriter. I didn't think you were a man of action and execution who was going to be um, focused on delivery. So why did you take this incredible leap? To prove you wrong, Ravi. Um, Yeah, so why did an introverted policy nerd um, end up doing social enterprise? 
what I've always been interested in is problems where the status quo is broken, not just in the sense that there is a big sort of social problem to be dealt with, but that the kind of answers that we've got to, sort of policy answers, the institutional answers that we've got to aren't doing the business. And in sort of past lives, that's drawn me towards areas like political engagement and the ways in which it feels like sort of traditional forms of democracy are leaving people um, out of the picture, which I think is more obvious today than it was when I was working on it, frankly. Um, it's what drew me into being really interested in, in kind of government effectiveness in, um, uh, in low-income countries, particularly in Africa, where you've got a huge amount of support going into various kinds of capacity-building programs for government, a lot of it not doing a tremendous amount of good, and yet the challenge of service delivery and implementing government's uh, uh, visions was clearly huge. And ultimately, it's what drew me to education. You know, I got to work in... Uh, places like Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Liberia, where you had reform-minded governments with big ambitions. And it felt, to use a kind of cliche, like they were genuinely at a crossroads and that you can imagine casting forward 20, 30, 40 years and looking back and thinking, do you remember how different things were and how, you know, um, how much has changed? But you could also imagine casting forward that time and thinking really not very much has changed. And which of those sort of forks they took felt like it was going to turn a lot on questions around capacity and skills. And it just felt very clear to me that the sort of traditional ways in which we were approaching education, both in terms of how governments were approaching it and actually in terms of how some of their traditional development partners were approaching it, um, weren't going to deliver the the results. So can you uh, take a step back and actually just Tell us what Rising Academy is and the model, and particularly from a point of how it differs in its approach to government uh, models or NGO models for providing uh, educational services in these places. Sure. So we're a network of schools. Uh, in Sierra Leone, we're a network of low-cost private schools. Um, so the the customer, as it were, is uh, the parent or the, the caregiver, and they're paying us a fee to uh, educate their child. Um, over in Liberia, it's a, a different model. We essentially run government schools on behalf of government, and the, the customer in that sense is um, the government of Liberia. But what we actually do in those different models is is kind of similar, which is to try and bring about a very different model of teaching and learning in the schools from what you, you would typically find. And the kind of four elements of of that model are, firstly, actually something I've already touched on around values and culture and ethos and being very intentional about how you um, reshape the kind of atmosphere of school to make it a safer space for learning. Not just a safer space in the ways that we sometimes think about that in terms of, you know, no corporal punishment and that kind of stuff, but actually more deeply than that, how does it become okay for a child to not be sure if they know the answer, but put their hand up and, and try anyway? Because in most traditional classroom settings, that's a very, very brave thing to do and often something that most children do not feel at all brave doing. And what we try and do is kind of through things that we celebrate, through the words that we use, through the ways that we train our teachers, kind of at every single point, we're trying to create a culture where everybody feels like a learner, whether that's the, the students themselves, whether it's the teachers, the school leaders, or us in the head office. So the first thing is around values. The second thing is around content and um, the materials that we equip, uh, in particular, our teachers with, to some extent through um, things like teacher training, but more particularly through things like very detailed lesson guides for every lesson that our teachers deliver. 
which we think is absolutely key to helping relatively low-skilled teachers deliver really, really engaging forms of, of pedagogy. There's kind of accompanying materials for our students because, again, one of our, our views is that we put too much emphasis uh, in the sector on textbooks, which often aren't quite the right answer and you need something that is more sort of um, tailored and bespoke. The third area for us is around coaching. We're sort of sceptical that you can never get teachers far enough just in the initial training, but we're always really stunned and, and inspired by how far teachers can come with the right kind of culture of feedback. So in every one of our schools, we have what we call a master teacher who has basically no teaching timetable of their own, but uses their time instead to work very intensively with each of their teachers to give them, you know, to watch their lessons, give them feedback, a lot of kind of coaching work. And then the final part is around sort of oversight. So much more hands-on management of what's happening in the schools, using data and technology where we can, but also actually just using a lot of kind of in-person time and having um, kind of field staff go and visit schools um, on a sort of week-to-week -week basis, as well as bringing some of the kind of lessons from other countries around sort of annual inspections and things like that to bear. The values and ethos part, which you talk really passionately about, often isn't a part of the the evidence that I've read. Say a little bit more about why you think that's so important and, and a sort of precondition, if you like, for effective schools. It is one of those things that's very hard to measure and therefore doesn't get measured. But we see it as very, very important. I mean, I think it's coming through a little bit in some of the evidence around sort of growth mindset and that sort of thing. But that evidence is also very kind of mixed. For lots of the other things that we're trying to do, it will only really work, it will only really land if it takes place within an environment where it's sort of okay to try it and for it not to work. Um, so for teachers, for example, if you're saying coaching is really, really important and we're expecting you to kind of listen to this you know, guidance and coaching and feedback from a master teacher, but it's not within a kind of school culture where the expectation is everybody is a learner and the sort of language we use is kind of you don't you know you start learning the day you're born and you don't stop learning to the day you die if, if you don't have that cultural piece the danger is that a well-meaning intervention doesn't actually have the results that you um, hope and expect because it's not sort of embedded within the right um, I guess uh, set of values and atmosphere. I want to just step back and place your work in context because over the last decade, you've seen a huge increase in access to schooling, free for the for the user. But you've also seen in parallel a massive growth of low-cost private schools where parents are actually prepared to pay rather than go to the free public school, particularly across Asia. Also in Africa, I think the statistic is that uh, one in four children in Africa will be accessing private schooling uh, by 2021. So it's about 66 million. It's an incredible yeah. fact and I think not as well known as people as it should be. What has really driven that and how would you characterize the market of providers? Because it feels like some of them have come up from almost very grassroots private schools where a mother's been pissed off that the quality of education is not good enough and they've grown. Whereas yours is more sort of uh, top down or external foreign owned organizations. How would you characterize the market and is there any different strength? Are there particular strengths that these different providers have? Yeah, I mean, as you say, the, the market has grown a lot. Um, it is overwhelmingly that kind of grassroots um, model that, that dominates. Although some of the kind of larger school networks get the kind of lion's share of the sort of publicity, in terms of 
the actual provision on the ground. It's, you know, any of these networks, you add all of them together, they're sort of drop in the ocean. And what's striking is actually not, even though the kind of um, discussion is often around, are some of them too big and this kind of thing, the actually striking mm. thing is just how few there are of any real um, scale. Um, particularly, I think, in some of the markets where you might most expect there to be that kind of scale. Um, so it's not, in, for example, the case that in Nigeria, with sort of tens of millions of uh, children to serve, you're seeing huge chains of schools or networks of schools emerge. They're still primarily these very, very um, small operations. And that, I think, is a a feature of both how challenging it is to run um, these networks, but also broader issues around how difficult it is to grow businesses in in uh, many countries. And so there's exactly the same issues around access to finance and how do you grow a school network when your best option is a bank loan at 25, 30, 40% that needs to be repaid in eight months and so on. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff now happening around if that's where the lion's share of provision is, how do you strengthen that sector? Um, in terms of making some of these financial products uh, more linked to sort of certain educational outcomes. So maybe the kind of terms of the loan are preferable if the educational outcomes they achieve are higher, all those sorts of things. Are there ways of kind of federating them and, and, and networking them so that they benefit from some of the same economies of scale that larger networks do and so on and so forth? And, and just on that size question, because that was a question that I think dominated the conversation back in the UK when um, steps were taken to start to cluster schools under federations and then they became more became networks. And the question was... Sorry, unpack well, that a bit. What do you mean cluster schools and federations? Yes, yeah, so, so, non-education people around the table. So you know, in, in the UK, we ended up with a situation where schools became very independent. So each school, each school head, became, basically ran its own domain, and then there was a push towards trying to group them together within two or three. They called them federations, and often that just meant that the head teacher was just spread thin. They're like, great, I've now got two difficult schools to run without much infrastructure to really help them. So then the question became, what is the right um, number of schools to group together so that you can then maybe hire a fantastic person to do lesson planning on maths? And so I think it's a really, really interesting question about what's the right um, size, because the contrary argument is you don't want some huge network, which becomes a massive bureaucracy where the school leader is very distant from um, the actual provision. So I'm, I'm really interested in this question about size mm. and therefore almost the market structure within a given uh, country. Is it right that you have four or five big uh, networks that own 100 schools or do you want 100 networks owning 10 schools? The math is probably out there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the the thing I would say is that I don't think that's an issue that's restricted to the private sector, right? The exact same question applies in the government sector, where arguably the, the kind of ultimate network is traditional government schools, where government is both the financer and provider of all schools. And particularly in some of the countries with the, that we work in, what's striking is sort of lack of decentralization. So it's not even like you have necessarily strong, you know, municipal school provision with sort of cities that you could potentially target and make that your kind of focus of intervention or towns that have to, you know, it's often the National Ministry of Education is the kind of main vehicle for improving everything. And I think that is a tough challenge. So I don't think we know what the kind of best size for scale is. And one of my frustrations with the sort of current debate and to some extent where the kind of current evidence is at is it's not even, we're not even really looking at that. It's not really even a question that people are interested in. 
and people are still tending to make it a very binary discussion about public versus private rather than to say there is massive heterogeneity of performance in both sectors you know in the private sector on average the difference between private sector and government sector tends to be pretty marginal the kind of literature basically says private schools generally do a better job that that job is not solely about who their students are and they tend to do it with um that kind of lower cost but the differences are fairly marginal what's striking is how much variation there is within the private sector and to just make the focus should you have private or should you have public is quite unhelpful because what you really want to know is what is it that the successful bits of the private are doing and how do we scale more of those up both within the private system and potentially within the public system too why did you decide to go into the private versus the public as a motivation and then how has your thinking evolved given the fact that there is so much variation between both sectors I think it's the right question to ask because it's not where I came from. I my, my background. You did it for the money, didn't you? Let's be honest. I did it for the money. I mean, like, <laughs> like I'm trying to earn a living, and I, I I'm often a bit shy of saying that in this discussion. But I do think, like, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't believe there is the possibility of earning a living from it. But to me, the the thing that I found compelling about doing it in a, a kind of private route rather than a more traditional not for profit route was a couple of a couple of things. One, there's something about the power dynamic that I find much more compelling doing it in the private sector. There's lots of really interesting stuff going on in the not-for-profit world around kind of user feedback and all this kind of stuff and how do you you know, make sure that the services you're delivering are what your users need. But it's just really hard when the incentives are aligned the way that they are to genuinely get that right and to not end up in a situation where kind of who pays the piper calls the tune and all that sort of stuff. And even even though, we're, you know, I think the the kind of um, not-for-profit sector is getting better at this, even the language that ends up getting used, I find just very difficult, kind of the language of beneficiaries and stuff. It all is sort of situates power in one very clear place. And what I like about doing it this way is it's just really clear that if, like, my parents in Sierra Leone don't like the school, then they don't send the kid and, you know, I lose out. And I, I like it that way. Um, so that's kind of a big thing. I think the second thing has been around the ways in which sort of private finance allows you to do certain things that more traditional finance doesn't. In terms of early stage, it definitely feels like it makes risk taking easier. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it's impossible to imagine a not-for-profit funder who'd said, go and do a school network. If we'd then gone to them and said, we're now going to do humanitarian response in Ebola, that they would have been up for that. We've had situations in our in our work elsewhere where, you know, funding hasn't come through on the timing that we've needed, and we've been able to kind of live with that in a way that traditional not for profits find more difficult. You know, the kind of classic argument here is around scale that it's just really difficult and a lot slower to scale um, organisations when you're constantly wondering how you're going to keep the fundraising pipeline going than where you're able to offer some form of return to investors, even if it's only a modest one. If you'd, have, if you'd have actually gone for the non-profit model, Paul, how do you think that the development and growth of Rising would have differed in terms of scale or, or risk-taking? Can you just be a bit more precise? I think we'd have just been slower. What's been your growth trajectory already? You started when? Um, so we got going with the idea four years ago. Then Ebola hit, so we opened our first school essentially three years ago. And we now have 39 schools and about 8,500 students. I just don't think we would have been anywhere close to that with a not-for-profit model because 
I just don't think we would have been able to demonstrate the sort of traction that has then made other things possible. You joked earlier that you want to be able to make a living out of this. To what extent does it affect you and your senior staff's performance, you think, having this incentive that is, might be different if you're in the nonprofit world? Not very much, to be perfectly honest. I think that's another one of my mild frustrations is like, I actually think some of the differences are really overblown in terms of how this actually motivates or kind of affects decision making, to be honest. For me, it's more at the kind of level of uh, how do we make sure we're always focusing on the right things and on the right people. But there's also a bit of me that like bluntly, you know, to come back to where I started around sort of what interests me. I, I am a little bit sort of contrarian and this whole idea of doing for-profit education or frankly even kind of for-profit social enterprise is not something that is universally popular and to demonstrate that you can do it and you can do it in a way that's sort of trusted and respected that's a sort of challenge that I, I enjoy wrestling with. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Paul Skidmore. Hey, listeners, I'm Arthur Brooks, host of The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you like this show, I know you'll enjoy listening to my new podcast. In it, I explore the art of disagreement. My guests and I provide some practical advice for navigating disagreements with friends and family, persuading and inspiring others through storytelling, and countering social media's amplifying effect on the culture of outrage. Listen and subscribe to The Arthur Brooks Show on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player of your choice. We are now back with Paul Skidmore. And I actually want to pull up the counter argument and ask you how you think about it, um, particularly give with education in places like Sierra Leone, uh, poor and fragile states. You said that you're kind of a low-cost private school. And I want to actually have you unpack that to understand what that means, because I think the contention or concern with this is that, you know, first, people shouldn't pay for education. This is functionally a state service that should be provided um, at free, obviously through tax revenue, but generally, like, parents shouldn't have to pay. And that once you actually commodify it in this way, you're both shifting expectations about what states are providing, what the, the net is of services. But you're then also fundamentally discriminating against who can get it. So, you know, one of the things that a 2014 meta-analysis of looking at private schools across developing countries suggested was that, you know, you see improvements in outcomes for kids, but you also just see that poor people aren't able to access it. And so how do you think about access issues, issues of what the state should be providing versus what you're providing in your implementation? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is, these are really big debates and I don't uh, like the, the word ideology gets banded around and one of the sort of uh, critics of the private schools world I think makes the perfectly legitimate argument that ideology is not a bad is not a bad thing mm -hmm. like you can take the view that this is just not appropriate um, and there's a sort of democratic right of countries to say and some countries have exercised that right that there should be no place for this where I get frustrated is where we kind of mix up, if you like, the kind of uh, ideological arguments with the kind of empirical, empirical ones. ones yeah. um, and I think we need to kind of keep those distinct. It's worth saying, you know, if you like, look at our networks as a whole, our median fee is zero dollars and our median 
child is the that is low cost. Know, is the child is the child of a subsistence farmer in you know extremely rural Liberia. So very clearly, we are interested in how do you make access to high quality education available for as many as possible. The median the median point is because the bulk of your schools are in. Yeah. A, P- a public private partnership right. where they're free at the point of delivery. Absolutely. But what's your median fee for your so private in, in, schools? In Sierra Leone, we charge $150-ish per child per year, including um, basically everything except food and transport. I personally don't love the language of low-cost private schools. It's not my language. It's sort of a term that people have used. And they used it originally to differentiate this sort of segment from the high-end uh, private schools. To me, low cost is a terrible way of putting it because low cost is in the eye of the beholder. That $150 per kid per year is absolutely nothing to some people in Sierra Leone. It's a unreachable fortune for others. So where I try and, I guess, get into the conversation is to say, if you think this is expensive or, or not, is sort of up to you. Mm-hmm. This is who our parents are. So in Sierra Leone, our kind of typical occupational backgrounds, our parents are... You know, they're petty traders primarily, they're manual laborers. We have some kind of professionals in terms of, uh, you know, teachers, maybe police officers. In the context of Sierra Leone, these are relatively well-off families. Mm-hmm. They are living in the urban centers, not in the rural areas. My argument and where I get very frustrated with people who sort of contend that that somehow makes what we're doing less legitimate is to say, first of all, even in the kind of global income distri- income distribution these are not well off people but particularly when you get into questions about what is sort of slightly clunkily called the kind of cognitive poverty distribution they're definitely not and what i mean by that is if you were to have every child in the world sit a standardized test that somehow could capture the variation between children in sierra leone and children in london or whatever you would see that the vast majority, even of better off families, even of relatively well-educated families in Sierra Leone, are very near the bottom of that cognitive poverty distribution. Our data on this is so bad at the moment Mm -hmm. as a kind of global community that we, we barely know how far down the bottom they would be. But what people have been able to piece together suggests that like, even relatively high performing education systems uh, in Africa are producing kids who are on average in the bottom fifth of the kind of OECD student distribution. And so to say with a straight face that the families we're talking about don't deserve better educational options than they have available to them, I just find a very difficult position for people to be in, which is not to say we shouldn't try and improve the government systems so that they don't have to pay. That I'm completely on board with, and indeed we're actively helping to do in over the border in Liberia. But we should be doing that. And we should be also making sure that whilst the schools that they have available in the government system are not good, they can have alternatives which are better. This is actually, I think, one of the really important arguments, because I think your pure statists would make the claim that what actually you need to invest all your time and money in is building the capacity of these states to provide these types of services and just focus on that. And that's important, one, because then they'll have the capacity to provide these services. It usually will then be more of a stable country. It will generate more economic growth. There's, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. The challenge, though, is that that's going to take generations and generations, right? Like to actually enhance the state capacity of some of these places like Sierra Leone, like Liberia. And then there's this fundamental question of like, what do you do about the children now? And so to take kind of a really 
intense view that you can only do one or you should only do the other can be a bit myopic. And you know, we've already started talking about Liberia, which does solve the equity problem because these are publicly funded but privately delivered schools, free at the point of delivery. I'd be interested, Paul, in your view about the strengths and weaknesses from your perspective of that model versus when you have more control, where you employ the teachers, you build the buildings. Does it constrain your ability to do all the things, you know, the, the Paul Skidmore secret sauce that you desp- described before? Um, are you able to deliver good education in the same way? And, and I'm going to come in here and ask you to actually explain what the structure of these public-private partnerships are in Liberia, because it's it's kind of new and a, mm. and a, a bit different. Yeah. And public-private partnerships is a kind of umbrella term that gets used to cover lots of things, and, and the devil is very much in the detail of them. What's interesting about the Liberia program is it's multi-operator. So there are seven different operators. They're a mixture of local organizations and international organizations. They're a mixture of not-for-profits and for-profits managing different numbers of schools. So there are some with more, there are some with relatively few. In each case, the physical assets of the school, the building and so on, remain both in the government's hands and remain the government's you know, responsibility. And interestingly, and this is an area which is quite different from some PPPs, the the teachers themselves remain government teachers on the government payroll. um, And the operators themselves are essentially just bringing a kind of management expertise with some ability to kind of control who they bring into the school. And if people are kind of underperforming within the meaning of the existing civil service rules, then they can potentially move them out of the school. But there's it's a relatively constrained situation in terms of the the kind of human resources angle. And frankly, that was one of the things that we were nervous about going in, um, because that did feel very different from a situation where you're employing everybody and you're you're kind of, you know, you know, exactly what training that you've they've had in the past and that kind of thing. What's been surprising and very exciting is how little difference it's actually ultimately made. It's definitely different, but it's it's not um, nearly as different as we maybe had first thought. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've been able to, at least on the basis of the, the randomized control results that have come out so far, have pretty good uh, impact relatively quickly. Sorry, by, by little difference, you mean little difference with respect to what? To use Ravi's phrase, the sort of secret source is relatively similar across the two, even though our kind of formal controls are quite different across the two. And that, I mean, that's really exciting because I assume it's pretty hard to set up a brand new school building, hire all the teachers. That's going to take a huge amount of management effort. Whereas if you think you're adding value and you can essentially take over existing schools, you could grow at a much faster rate and hopefully improve outcomes. I mean, that's obviously exciting from our point of view, but I think it also speaks to why one might be interested in these programs more generally for what they can, the impact they can have on the wider system, because it suggests that there are likely to be features of the things that we're doing that are more generalizable, not necessarily all of them, but some of them you could potentially take and apply to other parts of the system. Um, And that I think is is essentially the kind of big promise of these uh, PPPs is that they're a way not just to diffuse innovation by scaling up high quality providers directly, but also by finding kind of 
new ideas and new approaches that could have broader applicability. And the randomized control trial that you had mentioned is um, being done by Justin Sandifer and colleagues. And they did, I think, a, a one-year end line assessing this partnership because it was really unique as a way to think about providing educational services. And at one year out, the general outcomes per pupil were quite impressive across both, I think, literacy and numeracy as well as cost. It's worth mentioning that there's a few different operators. You were one of multiple and the costs and the outcomes varied by operator and you know they had different styles and different reputations and chose different strategies. So it's worth mentioning that there's kind of variation when you engage with these types of partners, but the average effects when you're out are good and, and studies are going to be continued to roll out to kind of see what happens long term. Yeah. I mean, just to clarify, it's, it was a midline. So the end line will come out um, next year. But I think it kind of showed exactly the sorts of issues we've been wrestling with in this conversation, which is it showed you know, exciting, promising results, but it also showed heterogeneity of, of outcomes. It really depends who the operators are and how do, if governments want to do these programs, how do they get smart about finding those operators and then managing them effectively? I mean, I think that's one of the most important aspects of the whole program, which is it probably doesn't matter necessarily whether they're non-profit or for-profit. The point is you're creating some competition and rigorous measurement, and hopefully that constant retendering will drive up standards and create some improvement overall. And we shouldn't be necessarily fetishizing one sector or another. We should be fetishizing having strong incentives to improve. I just want to sort of delve a bit deeper on the RCT because I can vaguely remember the standard deviation improvement that your program produced. But I'd love you to be able to translate that to what that means for an individual child. Because one of the frustrations I think some people have when they read research reports is that they see a research finding, but they can't really visualize what does that mean for the eight year old? How life changing is a year at rising compared to if they hadn't had your education? I mean, to not to slightly dodge your question, the the kind of technical answer is that a year of uh, at rising is worth depending on which measure you use. Point two, either, <laughs> either two point two or two point eight years at a normal school, um, or to put it differently, our kids are learning about three times as much in a given year as kids in other schools. So if you kind of fast forward that, it would mean that a kid at the end of you know three or four grades of our school has basically learned as much as a typical uh, student would have learned if they'd gone all the way through secondary school that kind of helps mostly just visualize how challenging the kind of learning outcomes uh, situation is in a country like Liberia I think everyone who's involved in Liberia would in, in the PSL program would have acknowledged that really big strides were made but from a low base um so yeah, that's to, why i always struggle with three times as much yeah so to give you to give it a very specific illustration what the baseline results basically showed is that um before we started over half of our students couldn't read a single word when the assessors came to evaluate them and um, that's not just the kind of the littler students that's students all the way up to grade six um, and by the end of the first year um, upwards of 90% could read at least a word. That's good. It means that, and this is a challenge for lots of organizations, is that even if your provision helps the better learners, does it or is it actually leaving some of the students with lower prior attainment behind? This suggests that our work is actually doing a pretty good job of uh, helping some of those. But it still doesn't tell you whether they're yet reaching the thresholds that they need to have a kind of meaningful level of literacy in their lives. And frankly, the answer is there's still a lot, long way to go on that. And that's why we are very, very excited that the program there is um, got another year to run under its current form, but it's actually also under the new government going to be 
extended and taken forward um, because from my point of view this is you know this is working but it needs uh, it needs time and what's the end state in a country like Liberia because again coming back to Grant's point earlier there'll be some statists who say this is just a, a temporary band-aid because it's not building the capacity of the state to run its own schools my question on that is why is an end state a credible end state for Liberia not these networks essentially running the whole range of Liberian schools and that could be a mixture of publicly run or non-profit or private and they keep having to compete and retender. Is that your view of a credible end state and is that a good counter to the sort of concerns that this is not really providing sustainable change? Uh, yeah, I think there's a really interesting kind of historical question about why education in a way that's not really true of other sectors has this kind of sense that there is a a kind of natural end state that is always full government provision mm. full government financing we're sitting here having this conversation in london and if you look at the health sector in the uk there is a very very clear view in the uk about what healthcare provision looks like in terms of who provides it and who finances it it is extremely different if we were to have this conversation at your headquarters in New York, where there is a completely different view about what the kind of appropriate mix of government finance provision looks like. I tend to agree with you that the there is no logical reason to say that governments have to provide education, although there are very good reasons to think that they ought to be sort of financing and kind of be the guarantors of it. But that is a I think a, at the moment a relatively niche position in this discussion. Why is it so niche? I think because we haven't got past, well, I think a few reasons. I think there's been, in terms of the kind of debate on the sort of public versus private, it just hasn't got far enough past these, to my mind, not ex exceptionally illuminating questions about which one's better and which one's worse. And I think partly because I I'm a kind of politics, political science, history nerd, and I think often we don't look to those disciplines enough. Um, and there's some really interesting work now going on that the, the folks at RISE at the Blavatnik School and CGD are doing to sort of try and bring a historical perspective to bear on this and like analyze the reasons why governments have tended to take that view that they ought to be both providing and funding the education and see whether that sort of still holds and if you if it doesn't could you start to move towards different uh different models and the rise group uh just to note is a, it's a large group of researchers doing work on education primarily in developing countries which puts us into historical context so you've actually kind of multiple times referenced the fact that you think it's not particularly illuminating to ask whether uh, education should be publicly provided or privately provided what do you think the right questions are that you think we should be asking and that you're personally grappling with? So I think the... Um, so if you were doing this podcast again, what should have we been asking? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I really just totally missed the, totally missed the point. No, I think um, it, was actually, it was actually, you know, as part of my homework for coming on, I was listening to some previous episodes and you talked about the meta, 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 meta analysis done recently of kind of education interventions. And I think the problem is that so much of the kind of best education research has involved saying, does this very narrow intervention work? Um, and let's rigorously test it. And most of the time, the answer that you get is context really, really matters. And if you don't have the right context, it doesn't work. And if you do, it does. And that affects 
seemingly sensible interventions like giving kids to text giving kids textbooks which then end up having you know null results it affects programs that work when one implementer is doing it and then fall apart as soon as a different implementer is doing it or you try and get government to do it or whatever and so i think the kind of question that people need to be um wrestling with are these questions around what are the in context examples of really effective school provision so not just a specific program but actually like an organization that is doing this well and how do we grow, like scale that how do we grow more of that and i think that there are examples of that to be found in the private sector but i think there are almost certainly examples to be found in the government sector the faith sector and other sectors but until we start looking beyond some of these quite kind of binary uh, issues I'm, I think we're going to sort of miss that and the, the research community for, from its part isn't that interested or hasn't been that interested historically in the kind of broader organizational piece they've been trying to kind of find the silver bullet interventions and to me that's that might be necessary but it's not sufficient and as you seek to drive up imp improvements in your schools and make them more cost effective to what extent do you feel that it's about perfecting the models that you've already put in place, even better coaching of staff, even better school leadership? Or are you excited in quite different uh, ways of doing things? Uh, and I'm thinking about, for instance, uh, how you coach teachers using video-based coaching or whether we can complement what happens through teaching, through computer-assisted learning that can be highly tailored to people's uh, level. Are there, are there particular innovations that you are uh, looking to introduce? Yeah, I, I think it has to be both. Um, so we're both trying to kind of improve the things that we're doing. Um, so thinking, for example, about what does that conversation between a master teacher and a teacher look like? How do you really build the coaching skills of those master teachers to make them as effective as possible at that? Um, we're in the process of developing essentially a kind of video coaching platform where we have content on our best teachers that we can then make available to our master teachers so that if they're having a conversation with a, a staff member about how do you practice um, the kind of no hands up um, classroom technique so that you're not always just getting the the kind of keen kids answering questions they can show a short clip of a teacher doing that really really well but I think there's tons of areas where we haven't even begun to scratch the surface actually one of the ones that I think we have not been particularly great at and there's actually lots that we can learn from other people on is around parents as a resource um, in their students learning you mentioned technology and i've talked about video i mean i think it is needless to say this sort of really frustrating paradox where on the one hand it feels like a no-brainer that in this day and age technology ought to be a bigger part of what we're all doing but in practice it's very very hard to do well and there's lots and lots of examples of people doing it very badly we are kind of always interested in that but also tend to kind of tread quite cautiously rather than sort of rushing towards technological uh, answers. Final question. If someone's interested in learning more about education, what is the one book, article, essay that you would say they can draw the most inspiration from? And don't say it's one of your articles or your blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is a really geeky answer. I mean, to some extent, I guess it, you know, it, it's been pulled together in the last year's world development report but one of the things that i find mm, has has most kind of crystallized for me the challenge is is work that tessa bold and colleagues um have done around um teacher uh subject knowledge pedagogical knowledge um 
and uh, and and sort of professionalism, for want of a better word, so coming to school on time and and so on. And they looked at seven countries um, in Africa, larger countries. So in terms of population, they represent about forty percent of the school age population. And the 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 numbers are just staggering, really, um, in terms of. Uh, how many teachers are out of school on a given day, how many teachers are in school but not in the classroom, of the ones who are in the classroom, how many actually have the subject knowledge to teach what they're teaching. Um, so something like 90% of the teachers um, uh, in their in their survey had kind of effectively less than a primary school uh, education. So they had kind of less than the less subject knowledge than the curriculum that they themselves were teaching. And that's kind of leaving aside the sort of pedagogical knowledge that how do you then turn that subject knowledge into engaging lessons that will get kids excited about learning double digit addition or percentages or, you know, whatever it is. This is it often gets used to kind of slam teachers and that's not what I'm, that's not my point. But if you don't start from that understanding of where the teacher workforce is, and what we need, what therefore needs to be done to support teachers build different kinds of systems of of um of 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 delivery that get the focus on high quality teaching rather than just hoping that the answer is going to be somehow that we change the composition of the teacher workforce then i think we will end up wasting a lot of time and money in this uh, in this area and and that that work in particular i think just would be where i would encourage people to start paul skinmore thank you so much for joining us thanks so much paul cheers thank you If you want to know any more about the topics we discussed today, um, check out our show notes on www.rescue.org slash displaced. If you like what you hear every week, help us grow by sharing the podcast or telling a friend to subscribe. And even if you don't like it, just help us grow this podcast. Tell a friend or subscribe. There's an air of desperation you in your subscribe. voice, Grant. And that- <laughs> We would love you to subscribe and we would love you to rate the podcast. We are keen to get your feedback. So please drop us a note at displaced at rescue.org or tweet at us with hashtag displaced podcast. You can subscribe if you do want to and you don't think I'm actually sounding desperate on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. And hello to listeners on Stitcher. Subscribe and share our podcast on the app. We'd like to give a huge shout out to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Alex Bandea, Ben Moskovitz, and Catherine Long. And at Vox Media, our production team is associate producer Jelani Carter and senior producer Golda Arthur, who continues to put up with us every week, much like you are. She has subscribed, though, I guarantee you, which is why we can recommend that you should subscribe. And Nishat Kurwa is our executive producer of audio. This week, a special thanks to Jay McComb at Maple Street Creative Studios in London and to Agrena Shashagre. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.